Aloha ahi ahi kako, and welcome to another edition of the Kanaka Express. I'm Kali Gumapak, your host for this evening, and mahalo for welcoming us to into your home tonight. Um, tonight we have another really, really good show in store for you because um, on the 20, on the 13th of January, in the Honolulu Star Advertiser, if you don't know it already, there was a story that was written and it hit the front page. And for those of you who are joining us for the first time and for those of you who have been following the Kanaka Express, we hit the front page. Okay, the kingdom's still in place, the courts were told. And if you see the picture, this is a picture of Dr. Keanu Sai, who has been a guest on the Kanaka Express a lot. And we're going to be talking about this article tonight and to um, expound and uh, to talk more and, and explain more into more detail about the, uh, the things that were written in this article. Because uh, I think it's, it's safe to say that the article was, was uh, well written and there were some uh, points that were made that we needed to expand on tonight. And again, I have Dr. Keanu Sai joining me. Welcome, Dr. Sai. Thank you. <laughs> and it's always a pleasure having, having you here tonight. Um, you know, the, in the article, it, it opens up where it, it talks about uh, me stopping uh, my mortgage payments and so forth and so on. And uh, the reporter, Rob Perez, gave me a call and interviewed me extensively. And we talked for quite a while on the phone. And, and I got to say, he, he did a good job in writing the article. And but there were some things that you know were left off. But you know, in the article, he he talks about the um, the loan and so forth. But we really didn't get into the securitization part, you know, of my loan and so forth. And the, we got a little bit into the title issue and the defect in titles and so forth. But you know, he also was able to interview Dr. Keanu Sai, and there were some uh, some issues. Well, it's not issues, but points that were made. You know, in the article, and um, basically, with the article that was written, what was your your thoughts about the article, Dr. Sai? Well, I thought it was a good article. Um, in, actually, it was better than I thought it would be. Um, when Rob gave me a call, he actually left a message on my phone uh, saying that he was going to be doing a story and that if I could contact him. So uh, Rob and I have some history. Uh, back in the days of Perfect Title Company in the, was at the latter part of the 1990s, 1996 to 1998, 99, Rob Perez was the, uh, the reporter for the Honolulu Star Bulletin. He now works for the Honolulu Star Advertiser where they combine the two. Yeah. So he and I have some history. I haven't heard from him in, in quite a while. 
So you might say I was pleasantly surprised at that phone call. So we set up a meeting and I actually went down to the uh, headquarters of, uh, well, the office of Star Advertiser. And they're located, and I didn't know this, but they're located at, on re at Restaurant Row. Oh. Yeah, that's where they're located. Uh, so they're on the second floor. And uh, yeah, so first thing I told Rob, wow, it's been a while. <laughs> I mean, geez, since, they're, since the late 90s. And he asked me to bring paperwork that I've managed to uh, get filed with uh, international agencies, uh, the United Nations, International Criminal Court, and so forth. So I brought those documents. And that picture that you actually see me uh, pointing is actually referring to the documents themselves. Yeah. Now, the one thing I wanted to ask Rob, what is the story on? You know, because I am very uh, cautious with media. Okay. Um, I have a lot of experience with the media where what you say doesn't necessarily get put in. So I can tell you a story and they may only take out a sentence and it's written in complete uh, and it's taken out of context. Yeah. So I was very concerned. Yeah, so I asked them, what's your angle? What are you going to be doing with this story? And he said that they were focusing on uh, Lao Lima, title search and claims. I said, oh, okay, good. And in particular, you. Yeah. And, uh, and Danahuna, who is um, one of the OHA trustees, who Dexter also argued this case for in the court, as well as other Lao Lima clients, because Danahuna uh, is a client or was a client of Lao Lima title search and claims. So when we... Um, began to go over the information. What I needed to do was to bring Rob up to date. <coughs> and Rob admitted, he basically s said to me that the arguments of Perfect Title Company, he sees, are pretty much the same with La Lima Title Search and Claims, that there's a defect in title and that there's title insurance to cover the loan. And um, he also uh, made specific reference that he viewed a, a Big Island News video, a five-part series on your particular case and Lowly McClients, and I was also involved and, and part of that, that, that news coverage. So he said he wanted, so he's basically responding to that, that, um, that news feed on the Big Island, which is limited just to the Big Island. Yeah? And I was kind of happy for that, and we got into it. And I basically began to bring him up to date as to where this has gone since Perfect Title Days to the present. So I said, you know, Rob, you know there's the same argument. He says, yeah. Uh, but there's one difference. Back then, I didn't have a PhD and a master's degree specializing right. in international That's relations. Right. And I said, it was a deliberate move on my part to ensure that I go through the university yeah, and go through that academic process to basically vet this information. And what came out of it was, with my PhD in this era of Hawaii being an occupied state, this is the basis of what Laulima is doing currently, but it also was the basis for what Perfect Title Company was doing. So when you say that Perfect Title, its arguments are pretty much the same being used by Laulima, uh, it's correct. But the one thing we didn't have back then that we have now is not just that I have the PhD, and I'm a consultant, but we also have an attorney or attorneys making these arguments. 
Uh, we have an individual named Kali, yourself, who is a owner of a company, a limited liability company, who packages insurance claims to file with the insurance companies. You know, so all these um, uh, things were not in place back then. So back in the 1990s, people thought we were crazy. I said, no, I teach classes on this, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I, I believe I recommended to him, I say, maybe you want to take a class from me and I can actually grade you on this information. <laughs> <laughs> but what I wanted to convey to him was not just the seriousness of the matter, but also how this issue is being addressed as part of the academics, as part of doctoral research. And I explained to him that I sit on a couple doctoral committees and there is more information coming out. So, so, so what I was trying to explain to him was, this is a bigger story than just Laulima, but yet Laulima is able to bring it out, you know, because it boils down to not about Hawaiian sovereignty. And I, and I, and I had to reiterate with him, this has nothing to do with the sovereignty movement. And then I explained to him, I am not part of the sovereignty movement, nor is Laulima, and nor is attorney Dexter Kayama. We are operating on sovereignty maintained. That's why we're occupied. So there are no models of sovereignty. There are no, there are no issues of self-determination, nation building, decolonization. That doesn't apply. If anything, that's part of the confusion. This is strictly contracts. So, um, uh, he and I actually met for, I would say, about three hours. Well, Yeah. And uh, just trying to go over, and I was trying to get him up to speed. But you know what's really difficult is I teach this in class. It takes students a semester to really understand this. Yeah? And that's not really saying they fully understand it, but they're able to take the tests and pass. You're talking about this information being crammed in in three hours to a reporter who's going to write a story on it. So I had my reservations, yeah, and I knew Rob probably didn't understand half of what I was saying, yeah, because it gets into law. It gets into some theoretical framework. Yeah? It gets into history. What Rob kept focusing on was, but the courts aren't accepting this argument. I said, but Rob, you need to understand that it's not an issue of whether or not the courts accept it but what is currently taking place when the courts say they're not accepting it. These are two different things. And I would encourage you to read the transcripts, to read the arguments that are being made by the attorney, Dexter Kayama, and the opposition or lack of any opposition to the evidence made by the prosecution or by the attorneys for the banks. And also read the transcript and you will clearly see the judges are almost acting as if they are co-counsel to the bank's attorneys. And I said, this defies the whole logic of an adversarial system. You know, It's almost as if Laulima clients are up against not only the plaintiff, yeah, but they're also up against a judge. That's not how it's supposed to be played. So at every step of the, in, this, in this process, procedures are being adhered to because it is through the procedures and the rules that this information can be understood. Yeah. So um, there is a, uh, this statue called Lady Justice. Yeah. And, and this is in front of the US Supreme Court. And many people may have seen this. It's a, it's a woman yeah, holding a weigh scale. And she has a blindfold on. 
Yeah? When they say justice is blind, what that means is the judge is blindfolded. He only looks at the evidence. And if the evidence is in favor of one party, they prevail. If the evidence is against another party, they don't prevail. So it's really the scale of evidence being presented. At every step of the way, evidence has been presented. So these courts, in saying that it, this argument is not flying, is really a political statement, not a procedural judgment gone through, let's say, an evidentiary hearing. You know, at no time have any of the evidence been refuted. And then I brought in my point of my PhD. Well, that's at the highest level from an academic standpoint. It's not refuted. But what you're seeing now is that information is now being put through these procedures within the courts. And the one thing I wanted to make sure he knew was that Lolima clients are not running away from a dead, you know, especially you, because the, the story is focusing on you and Danahuna. Okay. No one is running away from a debt. If anything, they are following through with their obligations by contracts. And what many people don't know, and we've been sharing this a lot on, on Kanaka Express, what is a mortgage? What is a promissory note? What is title insurance? So in a nutshell, what I explained to Rob is before the bank accepts the mortgage, which is collateral, which is the home, the title, as a lien, in order to accept putting a lien on the property under a mortgage agreement, in order to secure the repayment of the loan, which is a promissory note, they require the borrower to purchase title insurance in case there's a defect in the title. Okay? Now, title insurance does not insure against a future event as your conventional insurance is, but rather it insures against a past event. Yeah? And that past event is some record in the chain of title that would be a break or a defect. Yeah. Now, title companies, namely, use an example, a big title company today is title, guar title Guarantee. Title Guarantee escrow has title abstractors who do a title search to verify, in your case, Kali, your case, your, your title is valid. There, there are no defects. And it goes all the way back to 1845. Before the bank accepts the word of title guarantee, they require you to purchase title insurance from a title company that ensures the accuracy of title guarantees title report, ensures the accuracy. So if there is evidence that could refute the accuracy through the public records that there is a defect, then the issue becomes an insurance matter. And in your particular case, as I told uh, Rob, you took the necessary steps to address that with the evidence of the defect in order for the bank to file the insurance claim. But they haven't. Now, that right there is a breach of contract. Yeah? And it's also committing fraud and intimidation. You know, so... I knew right off the bat Rob wasn't getting everything. <laughs> Remember, you were cramming so many things in yeah. this, and I just want to make sure that he understands it. So what I did was I provided him the necessary paperwork so that he can read it, and that was there. So what came out in the article merely touched upon certain points, 
but it did not address clearly certain points. So my take on the article, again, this is just my personal opinion. It appears that more stories are going to run on this because there was a lot of information that Rob was given that was not in the article. And I think this could be the beginning of a series of stories as things are developing because this is a story. It is not a, a conclusion to a story. You might say, I think this is the beginning of a story. Well, you know, in, in, uh, in the article, he says, like dozens of other Hawaii residents, he said, and he refers to me, Gumapak made those arguments based on the claims repeatedly rejected by state and federal judges that the Hawaiian Kingdom still exists and the U.S. illegally occupying the islands. And, you know, again, you know, it, the argument was there's the defect in title. And so, how did, can you explain that? Well, to reiterate what I just said regarding when these judges say that it, they're rejecting it, I recommend it to, to Rob, read the transcripts, read the pleadings, not just read a conclusion. So these judges, the reason why these arguments are constantly being presented is because they have not been refuted at any level. They have just been denied in saying, we're not going to follow that, we're going this route. Okay, now that's political. That's not legal. And it is through that process that unfair trials have now come to the forefront. And it is through the, unf the, the, the fact that these are, these are trials or proceedings that are unfair because, I'll give you an example, in your case, in your case, Judge Nakamura took judicial notice of the, of the evidence. Now, what judicial notice means is it's unquestionable. It is what it is. Yeah? Now, by, by taking judicial notice, that provides what is called a presumption, that it is true. Now, the opposing side can try to argue against that, that it's not true, but they haven't because they can't. Judicial notice was already given. It is through the process of judicial notice, accepting this, accepting that, and then at the end, I deny uh, the motion to dismiss. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit in line with everything that led up to that statement. So clearly that statement is a political statement. That statement is not from a judge who clearly went through the evidence and determined it and determined what the status of that evidence is based upon opposition or, if any, by the plaintiff. They haven't provided anything. So if people were to look at this, the reason why attorneys are still making the argument because it's not being refuted. It even went on one case, on a few cases, to the Intermediate Court of Appeals. And all the Intermediate Court of Appeals says, lower court decision affirmed. Normally, appeals gets into the issue, if you look at any other case, as to why it is what it is. To say lower court's decision affirmed. Appeal denied. You're still at the same point where Where's the fairness of this trial? And where is the procedures that need to be followed in order for rights to be protected? Nowhere. 
And, well, and, and also in some of the cases with the appeals that came down, they were citing um, wrong things in the appeals process. You know, the Kaulia case, for example, in, in denying uh, the, the lower courts were, were citing the ICA's rulings in using the wrong rulings from the appeals court. Well, the reason, why they're using, the reason why they're using the wrong rulings, okay, the issues that are taken before the court on these issues is whether or not the court exists. Right. And the foundation of whether or not the court exists legally is directly tied to whether or not Hawaii is a part of the United States. These courts, under Section 12 of the Statehood Act of 1959, is where their authority is vested, okay, in the Statehood Act. The Statehood Act of 1959 was passed by Congress. There is a lot of case law that provides from the U.S. Supreme Court that Congress and its laws have no force beyond the borders of the United States. The only exception that it has is to its citizens abroad. Okay? Now, also added to that, United States criminal law can have effect beyond the borders of the United States only if it follows through what is called the effects theory. So the effects theory or the effects doctrine is if somebody plans to attack the United States or somebody plans to sell drugs in the United States where the effect of the crime takes place within the territory of the United States, those individuals who are foreigners or American citizens abroad, let's say in Colombia or in Panama, can be apprehended to be brought into the United States for prosecution. Mm. That's what happened to uh, Noriega from Panama, the president. Okay. That is the extent of U.S. law, but it still has to have effect within the United States. The Statehood Act of 1959 is what created a government outside of U.S. territory. If Hawaii is not a part of the United States, then that Statehood Act doesn't apply. These are the issues that are being brought into the pleadings that attorney Dexter Kayama has been making. So the only way that the court and the plaintiff can say that this court has jurisdiction is that they have to show that Hawaii is a part of the United States. So what, they, what the judge says, well, this court has jurisdiction because of the Statehood Act. No, but the Statehood Act has no effect, which is part of the argument. It's a circular argument. Wait a minute. How can you say that the Statehood Act gives you authority when it's the Statehood Act that's part of the motion to dismiss that is shown limited to U.S. Yeah. territory? You still kind of forgot the first step. You have to show that Hawaii is a part of the part United of the States. US, yeah. But there's no evidence of that. So when you talk about the Kaulia case, Kaulia case is not about whether or not the court has, uh, whether or not it exists. The Kaulia case and all these other cases, uh, uh, such as State of Hawaii versus Lorenzo, State of Hawaii versus, versus Fergustrom. They're all dealing with personal jurisdiction where arguments are made, right. okay, the court exists, but you don't have jurisdiction over me because I have immunity. That's a very, very different argument That's right. That's right. than what has been presented. So throughout this process, the reason why they're always still being presented is because it hasn't been refuted. And the appellate court has not taken up any issue and, res and addressed it regarding subject matter jurisdiction. So it's, it's a game. It's, it's, like a, um, it's like having cups with the little pee under it and where is it? <laughs> they keep moving it yeah, along. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, they don't realize that the table is glass and you can see where the ball is, that little bean <laughs> in the cups. This all boils down to education. And what I think what the newspaper provided was that this definitely is a real issue. To make the front page, I was surprised. But to make the front page, you don't make the front page if it's not a story. You know? And it did not come out with any conclusions. It only said these are the things that are going on. Well, and, and that brings me to the, to the next point, because in the article, because in the article is uh, pointed out that many inside and out, outside the real estate industry scoffs at, our, at, at the arguments and saying that it's preposterous, it ignores more than 100 years of history. And it quotes David Rosen, and he says, every court that has considered this has found the argument has no merit whatsoever. And then he goes on to say that these people are selling a scam. Well, let me address David Rosen. Okay, David Rosen represents these banks. Okay, so he has a vested interest. <laughs> Yeah. So if, if you're right, he's wrong. If you're hurt, he's not a participant in a war crime. So David Rosen has a lot at stake here. Now, I've actually read David Rosen's response in opposition to, to arguments on this. And you know what he cites? The Statehood Act of 1959. <laughs> Not whether or not Hawaii is a part of the United States, not citing the treaty, not citing anything, but just Hawaii is a part of the United States because of the Statehood Act. Completely disregarding U.S. constitutional law and case law and international law. So when, 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 when Rosen says these things, there is a lot of vested interest that Rosen has. Okay? Now, I have a little history, not directly with Rosen, but indirectly with Rosen. See, Rosen was... Um, uh, representing John Doe in Doe versus Kamehameha. Mm. That's who he was. Okay. That's right. Okay. That's right. Now, his argument was that the admissions process violates the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution, United States Constitution. Okay. In response to what he was doing to Kamehameha schools, I had a meeting with Kamehameha schools. DJ Mailer, <coughs> Ann Botticelli, Colleen Wong, head of legal department, Nahua Lucas, and there was another attorney there that I can't recall. But I was there with people who understood my position in an argument of jurisdiction, that the court doesn't have jurisdiction. And with me in attendance was Alan Ho, pretty well-known attorney, and B.D. Dawson, okay, who was part of the former case against Kamehameha Schools. Okay. And they understood that this is procedurally um, correct. And what I presented to them was this was when David Rosen was able to get the appellate court okay, to reverse its ruling. Okay? And, and uh, no, actually, Kamehameha Schools was able to get the appellate court to reverse its ruling. Uh, it was called an en banc. Okay, so at first, uh, David Rosen um, won in, no, lost in the federal court here. Then it went up to the intermediate, to the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where he won amongst a three-judge panel. And then Kamehameha Schools got an en banc, which is an entire bench, I don't know, more than three judges, 
to reverse that. And David Rosen was about to then file an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the issue for Kamehameha Schools that I presented to them was jurisdiction because the will and the policy of the trustees was from the kingdom era. And if there is any constitution to determine that, that issue, should be the should Hawaiian be Constitution, yeah. not the U.S. Constitution, because the U.S. Constitution, the 14th Amendment, and the Equal Protection Clause, that was made in response to the Civil War and the freeing of slaves and trying to protect freed slaves from abuse by the southern states. That's the context of the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause, which has nothing to do with 1884, the will of Bernice Powahi Bishop, and the 1887 policy passed by the, enacted by the, the trustees. So did you know that the same argument that Laulima is using with Dexter Kayama and a few other attorneys was the same argument that I presented to Kamehameha Schools. <laughs> and in this proceeding, you had Bill Meheula, who was brought in by Kamehameha Schools to sit in this presentation, as well as, and he's an attorney, as well as John Van Dyke. And when I presented the case, both John Van Dyke and Bill Mehula said they could not refute it. And it was recommended that Kamehameha Schools should possibly bring me in as a consultant to prepare for a motion to dismiss, which is following the procedures. Because if the court is not properly constituted, because Hawaii is not part of the United States, then this is a matter of subject matter jurisdiction. Well, what came out of it was I was told that this is too political for Kamehameha Schools. And I'm an, I'm an alumnus. So am I, and I'm not surprised that they did that. <laughs> yeah, they was trying to find every other way, but this is the same argument. So for Rosen, which I find interesting to be in the article, <laughs> it actually goes back to where this argument could have been made by Kamehameha Schools against John Doe using subject matter jurisdiction, which is the same information. Now, let's fast forward till today. I'm reading Rosen's comments, and you know what? He's not following the rules. No, but, no. But what it does show, <clears throat> Rosen has a lot of vested interest to make statements of this is frivolous, you know? Or to say how are they allowed to continue doing this? Because it's not being refuted. That's, how, that's the response. Or it's nothing more than a fraud. Right. Okay, so now let's get into, this is interesting. Okay, so it centers on. A lot of this centers on whether or not the kingdom exists because Laulima's work, insurance, title insurance based on defect, it all goes back to whether or not the Hawaiian kingdom still exists. Now, within this process, you have what is called laws, okay? and it can be common law called case law and statutory law or treaty law. Okay? They're laws. Now, what people may not know is that you not only have laws, which are rules to follow that have been enacted, but you also have rules of law, okay? rule of law. Okay? So a rule of a rule. <laughs> and a rule is not necessarily a statute. Well, it's not a statute, but it's how you interpret something. Okay? So, there, so there is a, a particular rule in equity that is called estoppel. Mm. Estoppel is to plug, to stop you know, something from happening. 
and it's based upon contracts. So it basically says a person cannot blow hot and cold. If they agree to a contract and they commit themselves, they cannot thereafter say, no, I'm not bound by the contract. Okay, you can't blow hot and cold. And if you blow cold and then later you blow hot, estoppel prevents the hot from having any effect. So that's, ex that's an example of a, of a rule of law. Another particular rule of law that applies in this particular case that is adhered to in the courts, presumption. Okay. The word presumption, not assumption, presumption. And people may have heard of that word when it's tied to innocence. So when you have what is called presumption of innocence in a criminal proceeding, the person who is accused of committing a crime is presumed to be innocent. Presumed to be innocent. Meaning, the burden is not on the accused to prove their innocence, but rather on the opposition to prove they're guilty. Okay? And the way the rule works, it's supposed to be guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the threshold they have to overcome. That's called a rule of law. Yeah. Okay? So, so the accused doesn't have to prove anything. He just has to show that I'm an individual with rights. Yeah. I have these rights. You show me I did something. And it has to be overwhelming. So that's what the court system is all set up as an adversarial system where you have rules of evidence, yeah? um, procedure. Okay? All this is in line to ensure that the presumption of innocence uh, is adhered to. Now, when you're talking about a country, under international law, there is a similar rule, and it is called presumption of continuity. Okay? So like a person who is accused of a crime, all that person has to show is that they are a person who has rights. Well, in order to utilize the presumption of continuity, all that needs to be provided is that a country has been established, international recognition, like in the case of Hawaii. By 1893, Hawaii had over 90 embassies and consulates all over the world, so clearly it was an independent state. So if the evidence shows that Hawaii is an independent state, the burden is not upon, let's say in this case, Dexter Kayama in these courts to prove that the kingdom exists. He already did that. The presumption of continuity shifts the burden on the, other side. on the other side to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt with evidence that the Hawaiian kingdom doesn't exist. So you see the burden is shifted. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. how it works. That's it. And, and there is a, a rule called presumption of continuity. And presumption of continuity is that an existing state, or a state that did exist, is presumed to still exist until proven extinguished. Okay. Dexter has provided all the evidence. <laughs> it, it's overwhelming. It's I overwhelming. mean, it, it's just coming, shooting up like a geyser. And the courts cannot deny that the Hawaiian kingdom did exist yeah. as an independent state because the U.S. president said it existed as an independent state, not because Dexter said it. Dexter is just providing that. Once the evidence is presented, and the judges in these cases are providing judicial notice to all that, Okay, that means Hawaii is presumed to still be an independent state based upon the rule. Yeah. So the other side is supposed to refute it. 
Now, when you go back and read the article, and here is Mr. Rosen, who is an attorney who should understand this rule, is making statements. It's frivolous. It's fraud. That's like saying you're guilty. Where's the evidence? <laughs> There's no evidence. So what you have is in the article made by Mr. Rosen are political statements that are clearly driven by vested interests because he has a stake in it. But I've read his responses. He has provided no evidence other than the Statehood Act of 1959. Everybody seems to be hanging their hat on this law. Now that does not rebut the presumption that the Hawaiian Kingdom still exists. Yeah. All it says yeah. is, well, that's a congressional law, but according to U.S. law, it's limited to U.S. territory. Hawaii is not in the United States. You haven't addressed that issue and provided evidence that the Hawaiian Kingdom has been extinguished. That's why it's very interesting that when people start to see what's written, what lies be below that are certain rules that apply to certain situations. So when, when an article comes out like this, I would hope and cautious people, don't pick a side. This is not like us against them. It centers on whether or not the kingdom exists. It doesn't exist because somebody said it exists. It exists, whether you say it or not. Well, this, this also leads me to the next question in explaining uh, uh, one of the points that um, Rob brought up when he tried to contact uh, the UN. And he sent an email to the president's office at the UN uh, to verify that Hawaii was a sovereign, independent country. And uh, the reply was that they don't respond to, it's not the purview of the president's office regarding sovereign matters. Sovereign matters. Right. So can you explain that so that people understand what that meant? Because when I talked to Rob and he called me and he said, well, the UN doesn't recognize Hawaii, Hawaii sovereignty because of this response that he got. So maybe you might be able to explain to the audience what that meant. Well, the United Nations is an organization of sovereign states. The United Nations is not a sovereign entity. So it's an organization that has, that its members are sovereign states. It's a successor to the League of Nations, okay? That was established post-World War I, okay? It was then replaced after World War II by the United Nations. Now, um, sovereignty is a matter of international law. It is not a matter of whether or not entities recognize or don't recognize it. For the Hawaiian Kingdom, international law has provided the means by which to understand and to verify whether or not Hawaii in 1843 was an independent state, and it was. So an independent and sovereign state. And by 1893, which was supposed to have been its 50th anniversary of independence, the United States in the illegal overthrow of the government in its reports with the US state, within the U.S. State Department confirmed that Hawaii is an independent state. Now, Hawaii as a sovereign and independent state existed before the United Nations was created in 1945. So the United Nations can only speak for the members. That's all. 
So when the protest and demand that was filed, which I provided to Rob, was filed with the United Nations, it was filed through the United Nations, but addressed to 173 countries who are members of the United Nations. It was not seeking the United Nations to do anything because we can't because we're not a member of the United Nations. It's, another, it's a club that, the, that Hawaii is not a part of. But there is a provision there that says the General Assembly can be made aware of a certain issue, a, a conflict of its members regarding a non-member uh, state. So the Hawaiian Kingdom is a non-member state of the United uh, a non-member state of the United Nations. We're not a member, but it's a state. There is a provision in the UN Charter that allows states that are not members to follow a dispute with the General Assembly addressing it to the members, certain members in this case. <coughs> That's all it was. <coughs> so when Rob is asking the United Nations presidency, which is the General Assembly, if they recognize the Hawaiian Kingdom as an independent state, that wasn't put before them because the protest was not seeking the recognition of the Hawaiian Kingdom. It was notifying the treaty violations. And the United Nations presidency does not afford recognition to entities. Only governments do. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> With uh, uh, here, let me follow up. Okay. What Rob should have asked the presidency, of the, the 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 president's office, what is the status of the protest that has been filed by the Hawaiian Kingdom? That's what should have been asked and get a response. Not, does the United Nations recognize the Hawaiian Kingdom as an independent state? <laughs> so, when you're talking about international law, as you would be talking about national laws, you need to understand it before you start asking questions. Because you could ask a question that is completely irrelevant from the issue. Yeah? So you might say, as people are getting educated though, people are starting to ask the right questions. And that one particular question regarding Hawaii is, where's the evidence that is refuting the presumption? See, that's a good question. Not, do you recognize the Hawaiian kingdom? That, that, that's the wrong question. The kingdom exists whether you recognize it or not. Yeah? So I'll give you an example. The United States will still exist if everyone was brainwashed because they drank something in the water that made them forget their history. So the, rec the, the, issue, the, 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 the United States of America as a sovereign state is not dependent upon whether or not people believe it. It's a legal reality. That's why the presumption rule applies, called continuity. And, uh, you know, once that's established, you know, let's bring this back to people's uh, homes and properties. Uh, this will validate the defect in titles. Which means people do have insurance to pay off the loan. 
There's nothing wrong with that. You are following through with what you owe on that debt. So nobody's running away from it. But instead of paying it out of your pocket, which people are pretty much having a hard time, imagine when they found out or they find out that they have insurance to pay it off and they paid for the insurance. Well, and, and again, you know, when we talk to realtors, when we talk to bankers and people that have, you know, that are credit union officials, uh, they really don't want to talk about this and come to the reality or, or come to grips with this because this really is, quote, a threat to the real estate market here in Hawaii. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and, and they're trying to avoid it like the plague. Well, here's the problem. It's like for the last over a century, we've been playing musical chairs. Six people, five chairs. Uh, people are sitting down. Somebody's going to be left holding the bag because the music is going to stop real soon. Okay. So when people start to realize that this is musical chairs, I think they should think about not just the situation they're in, but how do I make sure I'm able to sit down when the music ends? And they may have to bring in another chair. And there's actually a process to fix the problem. But at this stage, the banks are going to be left holding the bag. What they can do is pass that bag onto the insurance company so they can sit down on the chair. Well, what, what's really interesting is that we've been, for the last two or three years, you know, trying to talk to people, both homeowners, the banks, and everybody else to provide them with a solution, you know, to this problem because there is a title insurance solution and they haven't taken that solution. Instead, they've gone way off the deep end and have taken it to court and foreclosed on people's homes, and I being one of them. And as a result of that, we've had to move towards uh, filing charges, you know, against, <clears throat> against people, you know, war, <clears throat> war crime charges. But it didn't have to be that way. No. You know, and... Well, just as there's a, there's a solution with land titles, which really puts the burden on the insurance company because they're the ones who issued the policy that you paid for. It's not your fault you, you found out that their title reports are inaccurate from title guarantee and local title companies. That's their problem. You paid for the policy, and the policy is used in case there's a defect, and it's still evidence-based. It's not somebody trying to push something. So there is a solution for this, but it's on the insurance companies. But because the insurance companies are not being notified by the banks, then it's the banks that are holding the liability. You know? Now, just as there is a solution within the title problem or issue, there is also a solution at the international level on how to resolve a prolonged occupation mm. without throwing Hawaii into economic chaos. That was part of my doctoral dissertation. In fact, chapter five of my dissertation gets into how do you begin to right the wrong, and there is a process. That process has been implemented. At the same time, these issues are going on. So they're kind of dovetailing on each other. You know? they're, uh, they're not exclusive. They're actually working in tandem because 
international law does not necessarily become an issue in violations at the next level until you see violations at the local level, which is sort of the, the irony of this in that the issues being argued in court and what has taken place with clients, which are not called foreclosures, because you can't foreclose on something that you don't have in a court that doesn't exist. The terminology now applies where it's called pillaging. It's called unfair trial. It's called unlawful confinement. These are war crimes. It's not foreclosure. Yeah. And it's getting the attention of the international arena. So as people are getting hurt, it's raising the awareness at the next level. But as people are getting hurt, you now have criminal liability that is being associated with those victims. Now you got the Geneva Conventions. Now you got protected persons. So it's really a matter of enforcement. And the one thing that, that has happened, which makes Hawaii's occupation so unique, is that we're not like Palestine, where you can clearly see and identify the occupier as opposed to the occupied. Yeah. Israeli, Palestinian, okay? different language, different uniform, different clothes. Or in the case of uh, Germany's occupation of Belgium, Nazis versus Belgians, German language, French, which is in Belgium. We had that when Hawaii was occupied in 1898. A clear distinction between U.S. troops, occupier, occupied. But through time, since the early 1900s, with evidence clearly showing of indoctrination of my grandparents' generation, done in the public schools, that distinction has been blurred. If anything, it has been removed where the military now has retreated back under the veil of obscurity. Mm. And now civilians, our own people, are maintaining the occupation. So when you look at our case, uh, when, when Dexter is making an argument in court, it's, it's somebody sitting on the bench on, who's judge that may have graduated from commitment schools. Or the attorneys representing the banks. Or may have graduated from St. Louis or Cairo right. Key. Or, so, right. so it really is a very interesting situation here where this is what happens when a prolonged occupation is allowed to take place, where the occupied have been indoctrinated into believing they're part of the occupier and that they're not the occupier but rather we are part of the United States. That's, that's a heavy issue, but that's what is called the nature of prolonged occupation. <laughs> well, and, and the reality is starting to, to hit home with some of, uh, some of these guys that are representing, for example, the banks, like some of the attorneys that are, quote, commandment school grads and local boys that are representing the banks that are foreclosing on people's homes. I'll give you a story without naming names. See, there's a lot of things behind it. Yeah. That's why yeah. this is just the beginning yeah. of the story. Yeah, I know, I know. One particular attorney who is a Kamehameha graduate, okay, approached Dexter Kayama because he found that he was part of a case, okay, that uh, 
uh, where a war crime was committed okay, on Maui and that he was reported along with the judge and other attorneys in that firm for war crimes to the German authorities. And when he found that out, he approached Dexter and was livid, scared livid. And he was trying to say, I had nothing to do with that case. You won't find my signature anywhere. See, now he's trying to defend himself. Why was I reported for war crimes? Well, he was because he was part of the names. He, he was a, a list of names of attorneys with their numbers that was part of a, a memorandum in opposition to the motion to dismiss that merely cited the Statehood Act. <laughs> He's on the record, which was part of an unfair trial. At a later hearing on the island of Hawaii, Dexter was again approached by this individual. And this individual basically said, you know, this is not right. And he's bringing up those issues again. And Dexter responded to him, um, you're making the argument. And he says, the partners of the law firm are disregarding this argument and they're forcing us to do this. So Dexter recommended to this attorney, you better document that because that will be used as evidence to protect you when the proceedings begin. And he said, I am starting to do that to show that I'm bringing it to the attention of the partners of the firm and they are saying, no, you will continue. So this idea of being frivolous, no, no, there is no evidence, but everybody start starting to defend themselves. But I think what you're starting to see here in this one particular firm, you now have tension between the ones who are arguing in court and the partners, who are, and the partners of the uh, law firm who are receiving all the money from the, from the plaintiffs, which are banks. The banks. You know, so you're starting to see a, 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 a split of concern. And what is driving that? criminal liability. So, so again, if, if that was, so if, if Mr. Rosen's statement, statement that it's fraud, it's frivolous, then why would this attorney go that far and try to explain to Dexter, I'm not the one, it's the partners that are forcing us to make the argument. So you start to see this issue in every quarter of Hawaii. This is real. And uh, it, it, it's becoming bigger and bigger and bigger for them yeah. because it's no longer frivolous, it's no longer uh, fraud and so forth. And again, what also stood out in this article, what wasn't in it, the U.S. Pacific Command. Yeah. You know, and, and again that... Who is responsible. Who's for administering Hawaiian exactly. law and providing the proper courts exactly. for foreclosures to be exactly. taken and, up into. You know. And it's, it stood out like a big, huge, broken lake yeah. that wasn't in the article. And so maybe this that will be the source of, of another article to come. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining us this evening. And we have more to come because we're not done in, in discussing these issues and so forth. And... Um, Boy, do we have a lot to talk about. And I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Keanu Sai, for joining me tonight. And Bing, mahalo. Doreen, mahalo. Great job, everybody, here at Olelo. And we'll see you again in the next episode for Kanaka Express. Till then, ahui ho.